Hey Whiskey Ringers, it is the end of spring and almost into summer, and I have some big updates for you. First off, in case you haven't heard, we are going to be doing our first ever Whiskey Ring Podcast Barrel Pick. It is going to be not one, but two barrels of Jack Daniels Barrel Proof Rye straight from Lynchburg. And if that wasn't incentive enough, one of your fellow patrons, a patron at the $25 level, is going to be joining me for the pick. This is going to be the first pick of many. If you want your chance to be part of a pick team, this is the perfect time to up that Patreon pledge to $25. There are only four spots available at that tier. Hey folks, welcome to another episode. I am thrilled to bring on uh, someone I actually met through another friend of ours, Mr. James Walt, who is the head of Pure Malts, uh, another group that we get to do a lot of tastings with and a lot of experiences with, whiskey experiences with. So I'm thrilled to bring on Mr. Angus McCrild of Whiskey Sponge and Decadent Drinks. Angus, welcome. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, I wanted to have you on as soon as I met you with the first whiskey sponge tasting we did with James. Now we've done two, I think, maybe three. And I've been incredibly impressed with the whiskey coming out, as well as your own just thought process. So I thought we'd dig a little deeper into this. So uh, let's just start with give people a chance to understand your journey. So what's been your history in having to do with whiskey and spirits and all of that? So whiskey has really been a lifelong thing for me, um, which I think stemmed from the fact that when we moved from Scotland down to England, when I was like three or four, um, I I missed Scotland and it made me naturally disposed to like Scottish things and be interested in Scottish things. So Scottish food, Scottish music, Scottish history, all these sorts of things. And <clears throat> my dad enjoyed whiskey. He was not a whiskey geek by any measure. He was a, a casual whiskey drinker who liked whiskey and would like a bottle of malt whiskey maybe once or twice a year as a sort of treat. And my mum would buy him PT whiskeys from Isla, Kalila Lafroig, things like that. Those were his tastes and the whiskeys he enjoyed. And I really distinctly remember um, him expressing quite a just natural passion for the flavor of peat in whiskey and particularly Laphroaig. Laphroaig was always his favorite. And that struck a chord with me because my dad was really, you know, my hero growing up, like a lot of, you know, young boys, I suppose. And I remember reading the back of the bottles occasionally. And we would sometimes go, you know, we'd visit Scotland regularly. And my uncle, who lived up in uh, Scotland by Loch Fine, had loads of uh, bottles around the place because uh, he worked in fish farming and it was just absolutely standard that you would gift people bottles of whiskey in that kind of world that part of scotland that culture you know the number of bottles that he got given which and that era you're talking uh whiskeys which are now you know worth a lot of money and whiskeys which we would consider very serious drams today so i was exposed to whiskey initially through that and i had a natural interest so it one thing led to another and it was not unsurprising that i think when I became a teenager, I started reading more about it. Um, so I'd read whiskey books. And I remember reading Appreciating Whiskey by Pip Hills, who founded the SMWS. And that really, you know, when I was like a 13, 14, I was really quite interested in, in that. And 
so when I went to uni and had a, a you know big long summers at university go and do something else so I sought out work on Isla at Ardbeg Distillery I went there you know first summer just for a, a break I'd never been to Isla I really wanted to go of course had a great experience you know 2004 on Isla you could taste incredible things in the warehouse the first whiskey I ever tasted from the cask was an absolutely enormous dram of 1975 Ardbeg handed to me in a highball glass by Stuart Thompson while I was yeah. camping at the distillery for an evening so you know these are really profound experiences which imprint themselves very deeply on you know a young mind I was only 18 at the time and so 2005 2006 worked at Ardbeg for two full summers doing tour guiding and that was a really the kickoff for me that was what got me a very quick and quite deep education in a lot of aspects of whiskey and I got the bug, I got the passion. I met a lot of people that came over from Europe that were really old bottle nerds, you know, proper geeks. It was the first time I uh, witnessed, you know, we Belgian guys with car boots full of sample bottles of all sorts of, you know, hundreds of different whiskeys. And it, I just thought this is such a, a weird, cool, fun, nice culture and delicious whiskeys. And I, I remember trying... Um, Lagavulin 12-year-old white label, white horse bottling from late 70s. And that, again, was just out of some guy's car boot in Ardbeg car park. And I'd known about things like old bottles for a long time. I, I was reading loads of stuff on the internet. I was sort of absorbing this world, this culture. But that old bottle was one that really made me go, holy shit, these are different. And there is there's a world of history that's and flavor and questions to be sort of discovered there. So that was, I suppose that was the the journey to the point where there was no going back. And and from there, I just sort of, I don't know, I, I, I didn't have a plan. I never had a plan, just stumbled into a career. I really loved writing. So it seemed inevitable that I would do some writing around whiskey. Um, and of course, that thing that I took away from my experience on Isla was real deep interest in old bottles old and rare whiskies why do whiskies from the past taste different and so that led me a few years later after i'd done some traveling and you know worked elsewhere worked in a vineyard worked in london in a whiskey bar uh, worked in wine merchants in glasgow things like that i i got a job in an auction house called mulberry bank auctions in glasgow and that was really the start of my like proper i suppose modern career in whiskey was working in auctions dealing with old and rare whiskies and uh, sourcing them, identifying uh, counterfeit bottles and trying to, you know, and, and learning a lot as you go along. So it was just sort of stumbling through, really. And and then years later, here I am, I'm doing independent bottling, which I never expected to be doing, and starting a distillery, which I always dreamed to be doing, but I'm still kind of a bit shell-shocked that we've kind of almost about gotten over the line with that. So... So yeah, and, and I don't know where everything will be 10 years from now either, but uh, you know, I like what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. I love whiskey. And you know, I hope that comes across in the things I say, the products I put out, and you know, the way I go about dealing with it, really. So I mean, the, the two biggest questions that come out of that for me are, number one, between Lafroy being your father's favorite, spent time at Ardbeg, got to try uh you know and Lagerwolden as well has that profile has the isla profile in general remained your go-to or your favorite um, profiles 
<laughs> if you put, uh, I don't know, as I say, if you put matches under my fingernails and force me to make a decision, I probably would say the sort of fruity old style Isla whiskey flavor is probably my favorite, which to me really is Lafroig and Bamore from the 60s and earlier. I love, I've, I've realized that I come to love whiskies which exhibit tropical fruits, uh, very naturally present peat smoke character, which is not to say modern peat smoke where it's just a wall of ash and dryness and, and like pure power. I like deep organic peat smoke that is, in, you know, incepted into the whiskey in, you know, more old fashioned, less efficient ways. And I love waxiness, texture, fatness of spirit. I love whiskies, which taste of the distillery where they've come from. And you can dig in and investigate and get into the weeds of how that flavor has been, you know, put into the whiskey in that way. Uh, so that means, obviously, Lafroy, Bamor, Old Lagavulin, every single Isla distillery has made astonishing whiskey um, in the past and some of them still today. And so that is naturally, and because of my experiences and, you know, my, my dad's favorite being Lafroy, my favorite is, is definitely Lafroy from an emotional perspective, you know, a personal perspective, for sure. But I also love Talisker. I love the West Coast whiskies generally. I love Oban, for example. I think so, uh, you know, such an underdog, uh, underappreciated malt. Um, I love Highland Park because similarly, I think Orkney is such a spellbinding, incredible place. And the flavor of Orcadian peat when it's manifest in the whiskey in a very clear and vivid way like you get with a lot of these, not so much the distillery bottlings of Highland Park, but the modern day Orkney malt um, parcels of stock which are around and we've bottled a few of them and when you get a good one it's just absolutely gorgeous this beautiful very orcadian very specific flavor of like herbal dry elegant peat smoke that also brings along waxes and mineral flavors and then i love certain mainland distilleries like glen grant old glen grant is just absolutely spellbinding captivating it's so elegant. It's got such finesse, depth, complexity, and just class. It's a, it's a whiskey that is sheer class, sheer beauty. And because it's been bottled, you know, it, it was considered one of the best whiskies decades before Macallan was a name. Glen Grant was the name. And you can tell that by the sheer volume of bottlings of Glen Grant as a single malt going back decades. And for an old bottle nerd like me, it's a wonderful name because you can find so many examples at high strength, low strength, different ages, young, old, and you can really see the greatness of it, the diversity of it, its adaptability to great age and youth, and you know, plain oak that's completely knackered and the most active sherry casks. It can do anything. And that to me is, you know, just brilliant. And that's why I've got such a soft spot for Glen Grant. Um, and I said, I said Talisker, I think, but yeah, Talisker as well is, you know, my God, the Old Talisker is just exquisite. And my family, McCrailed, uh, we come from Sky originally. You know, not so, you know, just my, my dad's great grandfather, um, you know, was born on Sky, uh, worked th there until he was 14, and then walked on uh, the length of the West Highland Railway to get work in Glasgow. You know, just a different generation, very hardy, total different existence. But, you know, we've, We've got a lot of roots on Sky. So Talisker obviously has an emotional aspect, but absolutely a qualitative aspect as well, because it is a beautiful whiskey. So yeah, those sorts of drams. And then of course, as well, 
you know, you go to the East Coast, Klein Leash, because it's just such a brutally charismatic, persistently charismatic make, and it is the epitome of waxiness in whiskey. So it's very hard not to be charmed by it. And for it's an obvious one for me to love. Um, there's many more I could talk. You know, you've asked a difficult question because I'm just talking witter away for hours on that subject. No, it's fine. It's a it's a favorite child question on one hand. You know, it's. <laughs> Um, when when you're dealing with independent bottling in particular, plus your knowledge of older bottlings, just from experience, it it, it was a tougher question than it would be for most. Let's put it that way. So, all I don't know. I mean, for me, for me, it's not tough. It's only tough in the sense that it, it, you pull on that thread of you know, what's your favorite, what do you love, and if you really love whiskey, it, you start just wittering on talking for ages because. You think, oh, that one, oh, and then that one, oh, I should talk about that as well. Um, mm. But so I don't think it's a difficult question, really. Um, I suppose I just struggle to stop once I start talking about it. That's not fair. Look, I, when when I get asked that question, I usually, I, I love Highland Park as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was my my intro to Pete. I couldn't really handle the Lafroigs or even the Ardbegs until I got to Highland Park. And then when I got to use that Heather repeat as a an intro point, I'll be honest, I still can't handle Lafroy most of the time. It's still too much for me. Um, Have you tried some older Lafroyks, like sort of say bottled early nineties, bottled eighties? I don't believe so. I've only really tried the modern well, stuff. I well, we'll talk afterwards, but I I probably send sure. you a sample or something <laughs> because that's something that is is usually quite a revelation for people if they don't like Lafroy. If you try the stuff that was distilled from like early eighties and before, then it's a it's a totally different uh, experience. Like modern Lafroig is very powerful. I think I still think modern Lafroig is a great distillate, um, and you know I have mixed feelings about what the owners do with it, but uh, I certainly think the the core DNA is still you know pretty profound and vivid and very good. But old stuff is is beautiful. Tropical fruits with like much more wispy, elegant uh delicate peat smoke it's a fascinating whiskey so yeah i would recommend that but i totally i, I think if you got the peat bug from highland park i think you would really like the sort of old lafroigs because they they're on a much more similar kind of equilibrium in terms of their peat character those two whiskeys i would say sure i, I would definitely be open to trying uh i'll try I everything at once <laughs> I, I will send you a sample of some old lafroig again remind me i'll do that we we had an episode a few weeks or or maybe a month ago at this point, depending on when this goes live, with Einverk in Iceland. And they're most famous, of course, for their Floki sheep dung smoked whiskey, uh, which was not what people think it is. It was much uh, closer to just an earthy smoke. But again, I'm willing to try anything once. So <laughs> I've heard about this uh, sheep dung smoked whiskey. I've not uh tried any yet um i know there's someone in tasmania doing similar uh, funky things i i'm mm-hmm. i'm also similarly quite yeah. open to trying anything like this i i think that's part of the fun is keeping an open mind and trying all these crazy things you have to yeah it's I, I wish i still had some i would i would trade you but um i i only had a sample myself but it's it's worth trying uh for sure and it's not that expensive either but with so with the 
Pete in particular, just before I leave that that thread. For me, with with Lefroy, uh, the and maybe this is the modernity aspect. I struggle with the the overly medicinal, well, those iodine and really heavy tar notes on it. That being said, I loved the PX Karchus release from maybe two, mm-hmm. three years ago. So it's heavily sherried in such a way that it kind of balances the smoke. That Have it you can tried handle the it. sherry oak 10-year-old version that they've done? Um, or the sherry, there's a sherry finish 10-year-old 48% bottling, which I think is... Uh, it's a really nice example. Um, I, I don't think I've tried the PX Cargius bottling, but I imagine it's something along a similar lines. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely recommend trying that. Um, but I, I totally take your point about Pete uh, in Lafroy being quite medicinal. It's always been a medicinal whiskey. Um, but that speaks to one of the things I fundamentally love most about peated whiskey is that when it's done properly, which in my view is floor malted, on site at the distillery and using a peat source, which is, you know, reasonably indigenous to that area. And it's, you know, there's been studies that prove that uh, different peat sources with different composition from different bogs are going to deliver a different phenolic signature in the whiskey. And that is one of the most powerful, um, you know, elements of terroir. If you, you know, if you want to get into that, if you want to pursue that in, in production or even just, you know, localism, a sense of individuality and idiosyncrasy about a, a whiskey peat can do that in one of the most like clear and profound ways and you know it's not really even talked about that much as an ingredient in whiskey in in many respects it's just sort of it's just sort of assumed and you know it's transitioned from being a fuel source that was essential to a flavoring agent which is which is optional but i think that's you know it's very interesting what you say about you know, your way into it was through Highland Park rather than Lafroy, because that's one of the things I think is most brilliant about the difference between Isla and Orkney is you get very, very clear, different profiles of peat from those two islands. I mean, Orkney peat is essentially just pure heather, whereas Isla peat is, in, you know, it's taking in things like sphagnum moss and seaweed. And it's a it's a more varied composite of peat and it delivers a much more medicinal characteristic, a much more medicinal phenolic signature. And certainly when you try the older Isla whiskies from 60s, 50s, even 70s, when distilleries were still operating floor maltings, the peat flavor becomes even more pronounced and, and varied between the distilleries. And same with Highland Park. I mean, Highland Park from, you know, 50s, 60s is, is a much peatier whiskey than today, but also a much more specific flavor of peat like true orcadian peat very dry very herbal uh very organic deep earthy rooty peat such a beautiful flavor probably one of the best top five whiskies i ever tasted was a highland park 10 year old from the late 40s one of the most peaty whiskies i ever tasted not in that sort of octomore sense but just in such a a deep weighty dense thick power of of peat it just mind-blowing so yeah i i totally see where you're coming from and uh yeah i agree it's it's quite an enchanting whiskey Highland park when it's when it's pure and sort of you know true to its distillery house style absolutely and uh, not to say that we're going off on a on a huge tangent about pete but it, 
I saw an opening to ask you about that because I know it's, you've written about it in the past. Uh, and from, from my experience, initially not being able to handle Pete at all, maybe a Johnny Walker Black level of Pete at most. Mm-hmm. So just a smoky aspect of it. Now, you know, I love a Kalilo. It's my favorite Isla is Kalilo. Oh, cool. And of course, Highland Park and all these peats that I'm trying for around the world. And I think if you haven't gotten a chance to try it, the Waterford uh, peated expressions. I have actually tasted a couple at Whiskey Live Paris last year. Okay. And I can't remember the names because waterford put out a lot of whiskies and i'm not great at remembering all the different names but it was definitely two it was two different um peat sources or uh, two different peat influences and i i did i did try them and i was impressed you know they are i think waterford makes a very good whiskey i think it's a bit perhaps still a bit young maybe a bit muddled and i you know there's a lot of messaging around terroir not all of which i necessarily agree with but um, I certainly think that the the base whiskey that they're making is is very interesting, and I like the fact that it's quite different from bottling to bottling, and um, and I certainly enjoyed the peated versions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had to try them each a few times to one decide if I even liked them, <laughs> and then tease out what was different between them. Of course, from you know Central Mainland Ireland versus Scotland or 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 Great Lakes Pete here. So there's a an event on the horizon at some point I'd love to do that's just Pete around the world. Different sources of Pete, you know, Danish, American, in uh, from Indiana, like things that show that that is part of, if you want to call it terroir, fine. Um, I'm a believer in terroir, but not a not an evangelist for it if that makes sense yeah i think that's probably my my position as well it's a good way to yeah. sum it up i think but that sounds a great idea i, I love the idea of doing that you know comparing yeah. sources from different distilleries around the world i mean it's the sort of thing that you could even really go to town and ask you know identify which distilleries you'd want to do and maybe get them to actually support something like that and send rather than bottlings maybe say look can we have cast samples just from like the right the same age the same cast type so you could really get the most uniform view possible on on the peat aspect uh that would be a very cool thing to do well those are connections that you've got so far i gotta work up to those but we'll we'll get there we'll get there one day for sure um it's fascinating and i like i like interesting things like that that really get to the nerdy aspect of whiskey so um so with that uh Let's move into your history with whiskey sponge. Yeah. So uh, for for people who may not know, this is a blog that's been around for about 10 years now, 10, 11 years. I have 10 years, yeah. And it's very simple, whiskeysponge.com, no E in the whiskey. We're talking Scotland right now, so no E in the whiskey. And... In your own words, and this was from a not another whiskey podcast. This was last year. You said that whiskey sponge was created to quote take the piss out of the ridiculous things that happen in whiskey. 
and still accurate yeah <laughs> yeah um you know you also said that it's it's not as uh scathing now as it used to be uh but i still find the posts enjoyably scathing yeah i mean so, it's i think the, the whole scathing thing is that i think people perhaps miss the fact that a lot of whiskey sponge is just more it's closer more to surrealism than satire in some respects it's you know i've i've got quite a a specific sense of humor that i suppose mixes together surrealist sort of nonsense along with uh you know sci-fi interests and philosophy and and also satire like you know it, there is a huge component of whiskey sponge which is obviously satirical but the really scathing more barred more pointed pieces uh tend to be reserved more for the the big guys that can handle it and um, i don't i don't think you know satire should punch down i think the question of satire is who does it hurt who does it help and and i don't think i've always got that right on whiskey sponge i've tried to but I think the majority of the the really brutalistic pieces are big, you know, very large companies that can damn well take it, and and usually for a good reason because they've done something that is just, you know, naff or stupid or insulting, and in between all that, it's largely me just poking fun at my friends or having fun with in jokes and silly names and wordplay and gibberish and, and just general kind of surrealistic uh, nonsense. And that's just because, you know, it's a very fun thing and a fun way to write and it's a hobby. And I, I am you know, keenly aware that I just don't have the time to, to do it very often anymore. You know, there's very few posts on sponge nowadays and I'm loath to, you know, kill it off and draw a line under it and finish it up. I don't know. I did think about doing that this year because it's 10 years and I thought maybe it makes sense just to kind of just put a line in the sand and tie it off neatly. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I still love sitting down and writing a post whenever I get time to. And there are plenty of occasions when I'll see something and it just, you know, I get the kind of Scottish rage and think this is just atrocious. It needs to be, brought down a peg or two but uh, you know the flip side of that is that there's actually too many occasions like that there's so much nonsense you know when you mm. take a lot of the stuff about pricing adjustments uh stuff around investment stuff around you know any any number of stupid branding things that companies are doing and yeah there's just so much there's too much material you know i could spend all my time writing satirical posts and um, but it doesn't you know it doesn't pay the bill so I, you have to put your time towards what does especially when you have a, a mortgage and a young family and things like that so <laughs> uh yeah but I, you know i still love sponge i'm very happy with it i'm always happy when i get nice feedback and people say that they enjoyed it or they found it funny um and it's, you know, for, for better or worse, it's become my kind of mouthpiece. If I want to write something that's personal and or, or you know, a traditional sponge post or whatever, if I want to say something, then it's it's the obvious place for me to do that. So I shouldn't be too hasty in, um, you know, stopping it or trying to change things up. But, yeah, 
absolutely it's still it's still very much um what it always was i suppose so i i will fully admit up front i haven't read every single post that has gone on but since uh since being first exposed to whiskey sponge i've tried to read a lot of it because i'm interested and i also love uh i don't have the scottish rage let's say <laughs> i tend to be a little probably, bit more measured. Probably just as well for your health oh, probably um <clears throat> i would say but i do i do look at a lot of these things on that come up on instagram or on the news sites that are just like jesus christ man like how many people did this go through before it got to this place and it's still going out you know um a recent example was there's a whiskey being sent up into space <laughs> and the bottle is shaped let's say very phallically and um even with a flickered base and everything so you know take that for what you will and uh it's going to go for maybe 75,000 a bottle when it finally comes to market there's been a proper so there, space in whiskey, like the Ardbeg, I'm sure, was it Ardbeg that started it by trying to send whiskey into space? And then, you know, it's just, it's, it's just the ultimate, um, like, bullshit, quite chauvinist, quite, um, you know, it's sort of desperation, straw clutching marketing, you know, just scrabbling around in the dark for any kind of story that will help shift product, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, and what does space really have to do with whiskey or vice versa? You know, it's just, it's such a flagrant, blatant, you know, mm -hmm. absence of ideas, absence of creativity, just kind of, and, you know, especially when, especially when the end product comes back and it's got a five figure price tag slapped on it, like you just alluded to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that is, you know, that, you know, what can you say? It's just, it's such a such a piss take, such a slap in the face, and it's just insulting. But then, whiskey's always tried to rinse rich idiots for their cap for their coin. So, sure, you know, perhaps this is just the next stage in that evolution. Well, I read it, and uh, I was on a train home from the Indie Spirits Expo in New York. So, just tasted a bunch of different products that were promising but also you know in an affordable sense they were accessible yeah and then i see this thing come up and i'm conversing with uh an influencer on on instagram just go back and forth posts and on one hand i was thinking like what would you write about when you saw this as a as a let's say quasi satirical or really you know harder than that piece and then i said um it's going to be going up in an unmanned capsule and then come back down and someone said well you're putting a flappable liquid in in space yeah. and then you're going to have it re-enter and in an incredibly hot environment that could go wrong right and my first thought was well <clears throat> this is a bottle that's going to be $75,000. If it explodes in the atmosphere, of course, no injuries or anything like that. But if it explodes out of an unmanned capsule, 
that's probably the best of both worlds because a big explosion of this whiskey in the atmosphere is probably the closest most of us are going to get to seeing it anyway so we might as well make it a party yeah and and it reminds me of uh like one of the sponge headlines i was most pleased with was when ardbeg put some whiskey into space and uh did ardbeg puts the nas in nasa which uh, <laughs> i was reasonably chuffed with i think i got i got an email from or a few emails from industry people in fact some ardbeg people saying they were impressed with that one so that was good uh yeah i mean there's you know i don't know there's any number of angles you can take on something like that i'm sure i could come up with some suitably scathing thing if i sat down and thought about it for a wee while but uh it's yeah the thing that always strikes me about these things is they just smack of like kind of desperation it's just like and even though it's obviously a very operationally complex and expensive thing to achieve is put whiskey in space but you think well it's actually you know is it easier or is it harder just to instead you know really do the legwork and make or source excellent product and present and brand it in a way which is uh quality focused and honest and interesting and do the sales legwork to you know get it out there and get liquid into people's glasses and do all this sort of it's just it's like people are bored of of these traditional ways or they just can't be arsed to do the hard work that is involved in putting out quality so they just come up with these harebrained you know endeavors i mean putting whiskey into space it's i don't know i just think it's so boring and so unimaginative i mean i don't know i could be wrong maybe it's yeah maybe it's uh you know the future i don't know but like, i don't know if someone distilled some whiskey in, in zero gravity or genuinely put a hogshead of whiskey up into you know deep space I'd be pretty curious about the results, but not to the tune of, you know, half the price of a house. That's fair, of course. And yeah, I just, well, so this leads into another question I wanted to ask, and this is really um, perhaps partly for the audience, but also really a question for me as well which is you've also said recently that in, and this goes to your writing and I'm qualifying this a lot, but this goes to your writing process and not having enough time and all of that. So you said samples are the problem. Like getting samples to try is not the problem. It's keeping up with the writing. Yeah. And I'll fully admit I'm, I mean, I'm looking at my office right now. I've got, I don't know how many things here that I just, uh, even if I taste them and write down tasting notes, I don't have the creative capacity to write something beyond the tasting notes for every single thing, which, you know, it, 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 in your words, it chafes me a little bit because I'm like, I want to, like, I'm excited to get to that point where I'm getting samples, getting things to try. And I want to tell people about them, good, bad, or otherwise. But there's also just so much that you can't keep up. You can't do everything. And I'm, I'm very much the same. You know, I've got sitting in this office, there's a sea of samples out of shot here. Um, you know, much of it for work, 
a huge amount of it for um you know writing notes or writing you know writing reviews or whatever and it you can't do everything it's it isn't it is too much it's impossible to keep on top of that level of sort of input and i choose not to try and do it all because there's and there's no point in really pushing or rushing and doing a bad job or doing a whiskey disservice especially if there's a critical edge where you're going to write down and publish your opinion about it write some tasting notes i really don't like using the word review because like for instance if i write notes for whiskey fun it's it's my personal opinion and it's a hobby and i i really don't like this idea that it's you know being reviewed but uh if you do write notes and there's a there is some kind of critical component to that then you want to be you want to take be able to take your time do a fair and honest job and give a truthful um summation of your opinions and your experience of that that whiskey so there's i think in the same way of writing the sponge or writing anything less is more uh if I really want to do something, I will do it and I will carve out the necessary time to do a good job of it. Um, it does mean I get a lot of messages from people. Have you tried this yet? Are you going to try that? When can you do that? And I understand that. Um, but, you know, you you just can't just can't rush these things. Um, I think it's, you know, I think it's very, very true about writing that, you know, you you're more likely to do a good job if you kind of store it up and let things stew and you've really got a clear idea of what you want to do, why you're writing it, what your truth is. Um, and you, and you wait till you've really got that inside you and that energy behind you. And then you go and you write it and you do it and it's a good job and you do a meticulous and thorough, um, job of it. And that is, that is my approach a bit. And it's certainly my less is more approach. You know, I, I take a very long-term view of um, my career and, you know, the things that I do or things I say. Uh, I would rather, you know, if I say something or write something or put something out there, I would like it to have meaning and be interesting and be worthwhile reading. Uh, the internet and the world are stuffed full of opinion enough as it is, and nine times out of ten, it doesn't need mine. You know, it doesn't need my two cents on something. Um, and often I don't have anything interesting to add or say to a debate necessarily. Uh, there's plenty of people that will have already made similar points to what I would have. So I'm usually trying to think about, well, I should probably write something at some point in the near future. What should I actually write? What would be interesting? It's one of the reasons why I don't really do paid writing work anymore, because A, it doesn't pay very well. And editors often just say, oh, you think of what to write. You think about it. And it's like... I, that is hard work. Writers and creative people generally want um, the work to more specific, tighter briefs and commissions. They want to have some parameters imposed upon them because it's actually a little easier sometimes, I think, creatively to work within defined parameters. People just expect the creative to always just come up with everything out of the blue. That's actually quite uh, hard, quite challenging. Um, and not not very freeing in many ways because it's really just placing the burden on someone else but anyway that's a bit of a, a diversion but yeah i i totally 
hear you and agree with what you're saying about you know you get the sense of too much or there's just this sort of slightly overwhelming feeling of things piling up and just not being able to get to them but uh yeah i think it's important to resist the urge to rush or to try and do everything and fall into the trap perhaps doing not as good a job as you would otherwise have done wolfburn distillery captures the spirit of scotland's far north as the northernmost distillery on the scottish mainland wolfburn ties together long fermentation slow distillation and seaside maturation for unique and superb character originally founded in 1821 this exceptional distillery was restored in 2012 to its original greatness, resurrecting a 200-year-old distillery on the largest blanket peat bog in all of Europe. Whether you're drinking Northland, Wolfburn's first expression, aged in American oak quarter casks, Aurora, a beautiful sherried whiskey laid down in a combination of bourbon and Oloroso sherry casks, Morvern, their lightly peated variety, or Langskip, their cast strength release, there's a Wolfburn for everyone. Arriving to the States later this year is their first permanent age state of release, the 10-year-old. You can also find small batch releases and limited edition bottlings at specialty retailers across the U.S. Reach out to our friends at Impex Beverages for more information on where to find your favorite expression. Wolfburn Distillery. Fortune favors the brave. And I, I very much appreciate you articulating that because I, I've been struggling with that as mm-hmm. a writer and this is a slight diversion to my own writing um i was struggling with that because the, you get so many things and there are things that i'm excited about that i don't get to write about because it's just too much or between that and the podcast and all, and all of that and you face the same thing with you've got independent bottling you have a family you've got all these things happening and occasionally something will break through like um i was in london two months ago now went to the whiskey exchange i tried uh the damunak release the six-year-old yes yeah Yeah, loved it and as far as ghost distilleries go imperial is my favorite nice Um, unfortunately yeah from a price standpoint unfortunately but it is my favorite um but in in learning about the damunak and and its ties to imperial both geographical tangible and intangible um there i saw an opportunity to write something that would be a little different particularly for what i know is a heavily american audience Mm -hmm. to say why should i care about the scotch that's you know only available through whiskey exchange and a distillery whose products i will probably never see you know Mm -hmm. Uh, so but making that point that that is something that I was like, okay, I want to take the time to write about this because there's something to add here. As opposed to, you know, I, I get, um, I have this fantasy of getting Elijah Craig barrel proof samples from Heaven Hill because it's always been a favorite bourbon of mine. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, I would be excited about it because it's, I've, I've still got the only site that has reviews of all 12 of the old batches. And nice. tasting notes on them but also like if i got a batch of the new one today what the hell would i write about it <laughs> even if i loved it what would i write about it there's there's nothing to add there so that's where i find my dichotomy of 
I want to try something, but I don't know if I have anything to add. To your point about where is my voice needed? Where is my voice useful? Yeah. Well, I think that's I think that's not necessarily true because you if you've developed through your previous work an element of authority and you've got some experience then and and you've demonstrated to your audience that you know you're truthful and you're writing because you're interested you're not being flash you're not being showy you're trying to just communicate your truth about your experience of these whiskies then i think many people would see you know just to take that elijah craig example you know if there's a new batch come along i think many people would see your take on it as something that they'd be very interested in and would assign value to it that's the thing that i really think is key and foundational to having something valuable to contribute to the wider whiskey conversation through writing is are you being consistent are you being truthful and can your audience trust what you write and what you say um i think that's one of the things that has been has made whiskey fun successful over the years because serge is consistent uh, and true to his own opinions and tastes and over the years cumulatively the audience can sort of calibrate themselves to that and and it helps them to understand how they might think about a whiskey based on on what he has to say about it which is why even after you know 20 years you know another five tasting notes for five random indie bottlings of Milton Duff or Leash. These are still things that people want to read and, and take interest in. So, and, and and by the way, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people can be a bit snippy about tasting notes in this day and age, or there's all sorts of people that I think rather virtuously and disingenuously bleat on about, oh, these people got given free samples, therefore their opinion can be trusted, which I just think is gibberish. But, um, you know, tasting notes are still a a big important part of whiskey's culture, and it's a huge part of the language of whiskey, the way that we communicate, the way that we you know share opinion about the actual product, the liquid that we all you know supposedly love, and it's the way that critical consensus can be understood and built upon and and developed you know over time into something broader and more detailed and more meaningful so you know if you you know it's a good example of what you raise i think but i would always encourage you to you know if you've got uh, a tasting you know a, a sample of a whiskey which is from an area where you know you've got form you've got audience and you've got experience then your voice is i would say much more valuable than mine or something like that because i'm not an expert on american whiskeys at all it's actually one of the areas I would most like to learn about would be American whiskies, because some of the things that have surprised me most in maybe the last year, I've had some you know really old bourbons, which remind me just how beautiful great bourbon can be and how sort of threadbare my experience and knowledge with it is. Um, but anyway, that's that's getting off topic a bit. But yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, being truthful, being uh honest, humble about, you know, you know, working to your strengths, being honest about your gaps, your weaknesses, 
that kind of approach, that kind of voice is what I think people latch onto and value in in whiskey and in other, you know, cultures and areas and walks of life and products and all sorts of things, you know, fandom, geekdom. It's a very uh, shared foundational sort of principle and aspect, I think. And that brings to uh, another question about writing, which is with the, the voice and the style that you've created with, uh, with sponge, um, I would say less so with whiskey fun, because that's someone else's kind of baby, if you will, that you yeah, contribute absolutely. to. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a, a piggybacker on whiskey. Fun. Sure. <laughs> but, but certainly for the sponge, I mean, you made a good point earlier that, that I, I follow as well, which is if you're going to write something really scathing, really going after something, um, you leave it for the ones who can take it and don't punch down. Don't, you know, go after, I don't go after a tiny distillery or a new distillery. That's, you know, just trying to get their legs under them because yeah. then what, what's, what's the point? I'll leave it to other people to be, if you'll forgive me to be a dick about it. Um, and but if you know if heaven hill or jim beam comes out with something big and i think this is a ridiculous product for any number of reasons i'll write about it because it's as you said they can take it um yeah. uh, so the, and I, think, I think that's that's absolutely true and i've probably made errors of judgment along that lines over the years with a sponge and there's you know just in the sense that there's maybe been sometimes or i've been a little too snippy or brutal with uh you know some of the smaller guys i don't know but a lot of it is also i would hope that people reading it back would see that a lot of it is quite affectionate so for example um you know writing about some other indie bottlers or writing about a company like i don't know gordon mcphail is a good example it's someone that's quite you know it's big guy and can take it but also mm -hmm. quite like a lot of the things they do and i like some of the people there and it's uh you know, when I've written about them in the past, it's generally been more from a, like a just silly, affectionate standpoint. You know, a lot of the, like my friends in the industry, like, you know, Elixir Distillers gets a look in a lot of the time because I've, I know quite a few of the people that work there and I'm good friends with them. And, and it's kind of an easy target in some ways. And I also know that they have quite a collective sense of humor and, you know, th they like these sorts of ridiculous takes on some of the things they do. So it's... You know it's a mixed bag but yeah i definitely try to uh and one of the reasons perhaps why i write less is because um i try to be a bit more selective and discerning and if i'm going to really you know twist the knife on someone then i do want to think about it a bit more deeply and make sure that i think you know this is this is a deserving target and they absolutely are a company that can take it so yeah, I, I, I definitely, I definitely think about that a lot, and I definitely agree. Yeah. With that, and then um, I want to make sure we have time for the distillery. Yeah, and uh, decadent drinks, of course, as well. Uh, but the last question I have for you on the writing side is: with what you've written, have you, has there been an, a, a time or a an occasion where you face blowback or even threat of legal action because of something you've written and yeah, if so I, have you handled it 
<laughs> I've had three legal letters from the sponge over the years, I think. Um, one from an auction house. I was I said something about McTeer's auctions, genuine bottle of whiskey for a change. They didn't like that. They sent a, a letter, cease and desist. Um, and then the most sort of punchy one was from a company called Rare Whiskey 101 when I, I wrote something. They put out a press release and I, I pulled it apart rather savagely and they sent a, a letter which was equally quite sort of savage and and I ended up just uh just sort of conforming with it and taking the piece down as they'd requested and publishing an apology but I made it quite clear when I published the apology they said you know I've received a letter you know whatever and 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 you know what in those situations I don't let it bother me and I don't think that anyone reading what I'm doing is thinking that I'm capitulating or, you know, I think most people realize that when bigger people come after you with a legal letter and you've hit a nerve, you've done something perhaps a bit too close to the bone, too close to the truth, that's, in some senses, that's when satire is kind of at its most powerful is when it provokes these people into some kind of action or response. And at the end of the day, they spent money on a lawyers and, and I didn't. And that's okay um it's it's not the the most i suppose the most uh difficult feedback was not legal it was when uh i can't remember what the post is i wrote a post uh sort of picking on an article i'd read which was being shared a lot and just seemed like i didn't agree with it and i sort of wrote a more of a reactionary post and I think it upset the guy who'd written the article. And that was a good example of when I, I think my judgment was quite wrong. And it was, you could argue, it was more punching down. And so that, you know, you know, hearing, I think that it probably got to him a bit, who, you know, the guy who was a perfectly nice guy. I just happened to be in the wrong frame of mind, read this article and, you know, reacted the way I did. And so something like that, I think, is is more of a learning curve for me and sticks in my head a lot more than anything to do with any legal letters or anything like that. Um, which I think is just part and parcel of, you know, being a writer and taking on feedback and learning from it. And, you know, that which affects you and gives you pause for thought versus that, which, you know, you might feel like is an attack, but you, you know, or, or, you know, a pushback or a criticism and you can choose how to take that. You know, you think about it, you absorb it and you, absorb and you uh you know you respond accordingly and and i find that by and large reaction to the sponge over the years has been very positive and actually i think most of the biggest fans of it are within the industry i think a lot of people have said very nice things about it a lot of people in the industry have said we laughed our socks off in the office you know i spat my tea out over my keyboard in the office reading this today blah blah, blah. And that's really nice to hear. You know, it's it, it's good to know that there's, I think there's quite a lot of people in whiskey that work for these big companies that don't always agree either with some of the silly things that they do. Um, you know, I heard one of the best things I ever heard was that the Edrington or McAllen had a some kind of meeting about the sponge to decide what to do. I don't know, maybe they could have stomped on it and uh, sent some really brutal lawyers into, into action and I really got it, you know, scuppered. I don't know, but it was quite, 
it was quite funny to hear that uh, it had provoked some kind of serious meeting at some stage in the past. Uh, so yeah, that was that was quite funny, really. Um, but yeah, of course, there's been there's been feedback, there's been reaction, there's been lawyers, etc., all this stuff. But it's it's never gotten to any kind of really severe or or extreme stage. So I'm I'm waiting for the article that I write that will elicit that at some point. <laughs> I wrote one that I thought was going to, and I'll, I'll share that with you separately offline, but um, yeah, no reaction so far. Um, I think most big companies recognize that they're the big guys. And if they react, then publicly they're, they're the bullies. You can't win in that situation. You just have to kind of take it on the chin and absorb it. That's the point of being the big guy is mm-hmm. that, you know, you got to take criticism. You have to, because Otherwise, you just look like a, a petulant bully. Um, right. Yeah. So. <laughs> so for the last portion of the interview, <clears throat> you mentioned at the very beginning, you've finally got a distillery. Yeah. Or you're starting a distillery. And, uh, you know, you've said in the past you would do, this is a direct quote, you would do despicable things to have your own bonded warehouse. Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> so um, with the. So what's the what's the status? What's the news on it? So we've just got planning permission. So Kaith Distillery um, is the name. And the founders are myself, Johnny McMillan, who I've uh, been good friends with for years, worked on the whiskey show Old and Rare with, and he's been um, sort of quite senior in Berry Brothers doing their uh, bonded whiskey buying and trading and bottling for a number of years now. And also Aaron Chan, who similarly is another really good friend who... I met through, like a lot of people, I met through shared passion for old and rare whiskies. And and he owns Club Ching Bar and Bottler and Importer in Hong Kong. And he has really been one of the big driving forces behind the project in terms of um, helping Johnny and I sort of articulate our vision in a, in a in the form of a really strong financial model. And he helped with... Um, the fundraise and everything so we you know we're now at a position where you know we've fully funded planning permission approved uh the site is you know nearly ready to start uh, to have groundworks commence and when i say groundworks it's really it's quite straightforward it's two big agricultural buildings which are going to be reclad and and prepared for installation of kits so we've got one for the distillery and one for the bonded warehouse um and yeah it, you know i I often say that I should be a lot more excited than I am, but I'm just very conscious of all the stories that surround every distillery project that's ever been undertaken and how you can go over budget, you can, you know, completely fail. It doesn't happen. It doesn't get across the line for any number of reasons. Uh, Things take way longer than anticipated. There's unforeseen problems of any and all sorts. So I try to, you know, bear all that in mind and not be too excited, but I am incredibly excited and it's a really, you know, it's a thrilling thing to be a part of and it's a huge challenge as well, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to put uh, other people's money where our mouths are and to put into practice all the things we've been saying and talking and, you know, communicating about old style whiskey, old style whiskey production, all these things so it's kind of squeaky bum time in many ways, but you know we wouldn't be doing this if we weren't confident we could make something really special, and that 
we've got the right people, we've got the right ideas, the right contacts, and I think we've got a very clear objective, a very clear plan. We want to make old-style, distillate-driven, textural, fat, charismatic, fruity Highland malt whiskey of the best kind, of the oldest style, of the most vivid, singular, distinctive uh, character. And we want to make whiskey which, you know, tastes of its distillery and is, you know, built on the foundation of impeccable, beautiful distillate, rounded off by wood, not dominated by wood. And I think that's a really, you know, that's a mission statement. And it's a, it's a, it's a big challenge because we've got to make a product that has nowhere to hide. And, you know, so at the moment, everything is going reasonably according to plan. There's a battle to keep costs down as, as there always is. And especially at the, you know, the present economic circumstances where you've got to grapple with Brexit, inflation, and, you know, cost of materials, cost of transport, all sorts of things which are kind of against you. But we've got an amazing team. We've got some brilliant engineering minds. Uh, we've got a good diversity in our team in terms of, you know, some real industry, long-term experience, along with younger, very, very creative, very, very sort of uh, dogmatic value engineer type guys who have got perhaps more of a guerrilla uh, approach to developing distilleries, you know, designing and and problem solving and engineering. And that is, I think, what's going to really see us through is the team and the quality of the, the minds that are working on this project. So, yeah, as I say, it's, it's extremely exciting, but I will probably allow myself to be audibly more excited when we've got 15-year-old product on the market, I would say. That's fair. Like, it's... Yeah, it, it, as you said, it's a huge undertaking for anybody. It's hard to, I fully understand, it's hard to articulate that excitement without the kind of unknowns sneak into... There's always a note of caution. Yeah. There's always a caveat. Of course. But like nothing ventured, nothing gained. You know, mm -hmm. the biggest undertakings and the greatest successes are usually off the back of the biggest risks. Um, but, you know... In my view, we've done about as much as possible to to mitigate this risk. You know, the the founders, the shareholders are all whiskey people. There's no corporate money. There's no venture capital money. There's only cash in this uh, project from diehard whiskey geeks that love old style whiskey, believe in our vision, believe in us as individuals and believe in the plan and have scrutinized the numbers and fully support what we are endeavoring to achieve and you know i think that's one of the big foundational strengths of this project is it has the right people on you know the production design aspect the engineering aspect as i just alluded to but also in the, the funding aspect the financial support aspect and then you know i think that it's just a matter of being studious making sure that we make the right decisions being as you know careful and meticulous as possible in how we move forward and all being well we should be able to start distilling at the moment the window is sometime between mid to late 2024 so if we can do it before the end of 2024 you know that'll be a great win and and then the next phase is putting our ideas into practice and again this kind of this idea of being meticulous and you know focusing on uh, 
answering our questions. What do we do if we do this? What does it happen if we tweak this? Isolating all these examples of spirit, making sure we keep a very close eye on them as they develop, understand what is the right approach with our equipment, what is the right model and method that's going to deliver what we want. Um, and that's something, you know, that that's obviously, you know, probably the biggest challenge in this whole venture is getting to the point where we're confident that we have got the profile of the character and the level of quality that we uh, that we know we need to make this a success. Uh, so yeah, those first few years are going to be absolutely critical, as they are with any distillery. But uh, you know, I think we've got, as I said, I go back to this idea that the right ideas, the right team, we're lining up the right ingredients in terms of barley, in terms of casks. So I think you know, at this stage, I'm about as confident as I dare say I am. But uh, you know, it is exciting, undeniably, and I can't, I'm a very impatient person, as is Johnny. We're both very keenly aware that we'll fill the first cask and then spontaneously explode with frustration and impatience. Uh, so it'll be a very, very long first three years. And not that we're going to release anything at three years, but just, you know, to hit that, you know, line in the sand where you can say, we have made single malt Scotch whiskey. Um, but, you know, it'll be pretty thrilling along the way and it's a, it'll be a huge weight off the shoulders once i think once we start to see things physically take shape like the stills delivered and i think that'll be a real uh you know change in the feeling and change in the level of confidence i'm sure and uh, you know at as we're recording last night i was talking to uh mark westmoreland from wolfburn and he said he repeated to me on on that episode, but has also said separately that the top accolade that he and the team want to achieve is for someone 10, 15 years down the line from now to try something, not know what it is, and say, that's Wolfburn. Yeah. You know, be identifiable. Um and and he's also got other elements that that match up in terms of how they want to use the wood management and uh, not to, to enhance the spirit and add to it as opposed to hiding it. So there, there were uh, parallels in my mind going on as you were speaking, I was thinking, Oh, that's something that was said as well. So, you know, number one, we'll, we'll definitely have you on again to talk about down the line, how the distillery is doing. And, and once we the kid is in, come on together yeah. really we should get uh, johnny and and myself on you know because uh it's it's good to have us both there because you know he's he covers aspects of it um in greater detail that i don't and, and vice versa and so you know i think that's the thing about kai is that we are a team it's not just one individual it's it's a collective endeavor by like at the heart of it three very very passionate people with quite diverse experiences and backgrounds and i think that's you know the great strength um that you know sits at the heart of the project so absolutely we would love to come back on and, and chat about it once we're a bit further along the road and we've got some more you know some more things to to talk about report on absolutely so i'll tell you the first question that came to mind and we'll we'll end on this is that um the, the first question that came to mind as you were describing what you want from the distillery is 
given your history, your proclivity for older whiskeys, you just said you want something that evokes that older spirit and the way that it was created and and the, the fruitiness, the floral, the tropical notes. Um, and don't answer this now. We'll save that for the next episode. But I'm curious how the stills and the entire distillery are being designed with the, that thought in mind. That's the character spirit that you want to create? Well, I mean, so. the one thing I'll say about that just now is that they have been designed exactly with that character in mind. Every single piece of the production process, almost down to things like pipework, has been gone over from the perspective of how is this, what is the right decision to make here to deliver holistically at the end of the day the best possible quality spirit the best possible quality malt whiskey that has the personality of varied fat very heavy distillate driven tropical fruit dominated waxy old style highland malt whiskey so in terms of what the answer is and the, the decisions we've made the sort of the specifics of our kit and everything then i think absolutely that's a, a great discussion topic to stick a peg in for the future and revisit all right we will definitely do so and i guess a quick question on that is it <laughs> will it be more or less complicated than more lock? Less. Okay. Less. <laughs> Thank God. Absolutely. No, no. It's it's yeah. It's it's not going to be um. Not going to be a, a sort of a, an intricate uh, juggling process like Mortlach or even Springbank in some ways. Um, no, it's mm. traditional double pot still distillation, but just you know introducing things like direct wood firing of a wash still, which is not something that's really been done. I mean, direct coal firing was the last kind of direct, uh, you know, flame heat source outside gas in Scotland. And I don't know anyone that's done wood in, you know, legally in, in recent decades. So yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lo whole load of stuff like that about that uh, to discuss in, in more detail, but it's probably one for after we've started making spirit and we understand ourselves exactly how, our our theory about it has worked in practice and how it, it all fits together and how it operates and because that'll be a big learning curve as well once we get started oh it's a date you'll be back on we'll bring on johnny we'll bring on the entire team whoever you would like to come on to talk about that because then we can get really nerdy into the process but in the meantime angus thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about the sponge about uh, we didn't even talk that much about decadent and drinks and and we should at some point too. Oh, I'm going would... to get in trouble with my marketing manager for uh, not talking about decadent <laughs> drinks. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to come back on anytime and, and chat about any of these things. Um, True. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed chatting to you. It's been, it's been a really nice way to spend a Friday afternoon. Fantastic. And uh, thank you everyone for bearing with my uh, slightly altered voice today. It's a little cloudier than it usually is, but um in the meantime, there will be a ton more than usual links in the show notes for this episode to not only the sponge, but to decadent drinks to um, I'm also going to include a link to Pure Malts, our mutual friend James's group here based in New York, just because Angus has been gracious enough to come on multiple times and do tastings with the group. And uh, hell, I'm sitting here with uh, my favorite, the old Brosdew. Ah, useful dram. Yeah, that's oh. really, really old, 
kind of old school Loch Lomond, very fruity, cosplaying as an Irish whiskey. Yeah, I, yeah, I love it. Do you mind if I do one completely flagrant plug? Um, oh, please, because <laughs> it's our archive sale next week. It's our summer archive sale, and um, we're going to be doing uh, shipping deals, so uh, free shipping worldwide on orders over two hundred quid. And there's going to be a whole load of um, sort of formerly sold out products that we've got little bits of stock here and there going up online. So, you know, from next week onwards, uh, keep an eye on the website and uh, our socials and uh, there should be some pretty tasty bottles uh, going up. So, yeah. Okay. Plug over. I'm very bad. <laughs> no, totally fine. Um, I, I don't know time wise if this this might come out afterwards, but I will make sure if it does come out afterwards, I'll make sure to post about it because that's how I got some of my bottles was through a separate sale like that. It was completely cool. worth it. Um, so if you can shoot me the, you know, the dates and all that, and I will make sure to post about it. Um, I'm a huge fan. And yeah, again, just thank you for coming on, man. Um, hang on with me for a sec after recording to close out a few things. It's been another episode of the Whiskey Ring podcast. Check out all of the show notes for this episode you're going to want to hit all of them don't miss a thing and i will see you next week hey folks thanks for listening to another episode of the whiskering podcast if you like what you hear please go ahead and click that subscribe follow or like button leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear you can reach out to me through the podcast apps or Email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume Under the Influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.